that makes sense of life. For the next 10 weeks, we are looking at the big picture of the Bible, how the Bible fits together and how it makes sense of our lives. Now, this week, I heard a a story about a senior police officer, and he became a Christian, he became a, a follower of Jesus, and he wanted other people to come to know Jesus as well. And so he signed up to teach scripture at the local primary school. And so he did this during his lunch hour. He went down to the school for the first lesson, fully dressed in his uh, police uniform. He walked into the classroom, he picked up the curriculum, and he saw that it was on the Old Testament story of Jericho. And so he sat down in front of the class and he asked the class, who knocked down the walls of Jericho? Now the kids were sitting there and they're starting to shuffle a little bit nervously until eventually one of the boys puts up his hand and says, please, sir. My name is Bruce Jones. I don't know who did it, but it wasn't me. (laughs) That's a bit of a funny story. It's probably not a true story, but it illustrates a true point. Many people today, even young people, are ignorant of the Bible, not familiar with the Bible, not aware of its contents and especially its main message. I wonder what comes to mind for you when you think about the Bible. Maybe you're not a Christian and maybe you think the Bible is harmful. It's repressive, it's restrictive, it's been used to justify all kinds of atrocities. Or maybe you think the Bible is simply boring and irrelevant. It's a a big book full of weird stories and outdated ideas. Or maybe you've just never considered the Bible, you've never read it, you've never really thought of it as a viable option for your life. Or maybe you're a Christian, and when you think about the Bible, you feel guilty. You know you should read it, but if you're honest, you don't. Not necessarily because you don't want to, but because those times when you do read it, you find yourself a little bit lost. There's strange names and long lists, and you're not always certain what you're reading. You become a little bit dazed and confused. Or maybe you are a Christian and you love the Bible. You treasure its wisdom. You love to study it and learn from it and be changed by it. Whatever your attitude towards the Bible, whatever your experience with the Bible, we cannot deny the influence of the Bible. There was a French philosopher by the name of Voltaire, and he wrote in the 1700s, he said that a hundred years from my death, the Bible will be a museum piece. It will have no relevance for our lives, it will just sit in museums. Now the story goes that uh, Voltaire's old home in Paris, it it eventually became a distribution centre for Bibles. What is it about the Bible? No book has been burned, banned, or debated more often and more vigorously than the Bible. And it just doesn't seem to be going away. Its popularity does not seem to be waning. In fact, the Bible is the world's best-selling book. Apart from the year 2007, when it was knocked off its perch by Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, the Bible has been the world's best-selling book every year since records have been kept. To give you some perspective, the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis has sold 100 million copies. 
The Lord of the Rings trilogy by Tolkien has sold 150 million copies. The Harry Potter series has sold 500 million copies. The Bible has sold around 5 billion copies. The world's most popular book by a long stretch. It's also the world's most influential book. Many of us have names that come from the Bible. Our, sh- our calendar and our seasons are based around the Bible. We literally just had two public holidays last weekend to commemorate the events of Easter, which are recorded for us in the Bible. The Bible has influenced our language and our laws. It's led to political and social reform. It's inspired great works of literature, art, music, movies. The Bible has shaped our world like no other book in history. And all of this led a a Canadian literary critic um, with the great name Northrop Fry. He once said this about the Bible. He said, why does this huge, sprawling, tactless book, he's not a Christian, he's not a believer, why does this huge book sit there inscrutably in the middle of our cultural heritage? Listen to this, frustrating all our efforts to walk around it. Why indeed? Why is the Bible so undeniably popular and so enduringly influential? Now, you might say, well, it's because the church has imposed the Bible on society. It's forced the Bible onto our world. But consider the example of China. Now, China has been ruled by an atheist communist regime for decades. During the 20th century, Bibles were banned and confiscated. No one would say that the Bible was being imposed upon the Chinese people. And yet recently, the Amity Press in Nanjing, China, they celebrated the printing of their 200 millionth Bible. They are one of the largest distributors of Bibles in the world. There is something deeper to the enduring influence and popularity of the Bible. And I would suggest that the answer is found in the incredible claim that the Bible makes about itself. And this claim is even implicit in the title itself. If you have a Bible there in front of you, it will say probably on it somewhere the title Holy Bible. Now that word Bible is not actually a religious word. It's a translation of the Greek word Biblia, which simply means books. The Bible is a book or a collection of books. But there's another word in that title, and it's the word holy. And that word means sacred or set apart or other. See, the claim, even implicit in the title, is that this is a book like no other. That this is a book that is above and beyond all others. And this is a claim that the Bible makes itself. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is a well-known passage of Scripture, and it says this, All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, this is a massive claim. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who's writing to a young leader named Timothy, he's saying that the Bible is not man's words about God, but actually it's God's word to man. That the Bible has been breathed out by God. Now, Paul is probably inventing this word that he uses here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, God breathed. It's not found anywhere else in any Greek text. Paul is straining at the limits of language to explain how the scriptures have come to us. And he's saying that it's by God and it's from God. 
Now, what does this mean? What does this look like, practically speaking? Because it doesn't mean that God picked up a pen, wrote a book, and then beamed it down to earth, and it it magically appeared in pulpits and, and bedside tables and hotel drawers all over the world. That's not the claim. You see, God didn't write the any of the Bible, strictly speaking. The Bible was written by ordinary human authors. In fact, it was written by around 40 different authors over a period of almost 2,000 years on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, and in three different languages. The Old Testament in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, with a little bit of Aramaic. Now think about this. Imagine that I started to write a book this afternoon. Went home, started to write a book, And then 40 other authors made contributions to this book. And they were from different countries, different backgrounds. Some even spoke different languages. And these contributions were made over a long period of time. Imagine this book was not completed until the year 4022. Now, what are the chances that this book that I begin this afternoon would make any sense? They're not very high. And yet, this is exactly the story of the Bible. And the Bible not only makes sense, it is beautiful and profound and compelling. And it tells one cohesive story. It all fits together. Now, how is this possible? Could it be that behind these many authors, over these many, many years, there was one single divine author guiding it all? Perhaps think about it this way. On the screen is a photo of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Now, who built St. Paul's Cathedral? If you know your history of architecture, you would say Sir Christopher Wren. And you'd be right. He was the architect. He designed it. The placement of every brick in that building was determined by him. Now, this doesn't mean that Sir Christopher actually picked up a single brick to build St. Paul's Cathedral. The actual construction was done by dozens of laborers over a period of 36 years. But behind all of them was the ingenuity, the design, the inspiration of Sir Christopher. And in a similar way, dozens of human authors, they wrote down the words of the Bible. But God was the architect. He inspired them. Every word is determined by him. And so what do we find when we pick up this book that has been inspired and authored by God? What do we find in the pages of this holy Bible, this book that is like no other? Well, we actually find that it's more of a library than a single book. It's a collection of 66 books, and they are organized largely by genre. In fact, you'll see a picture on the screen, which you also will have in your growth group guide. It shows you there the the structuring of the books of the Bible. See, Genesis through to Esther, the first 13 books, they are largely narrative or history. Then Job through Lamentations is poetry or wisdom. These are what's called the wisdom books of the Bible. Then Isaiah through to Malachi is prophecy. Then the New Testament, which begins with the four Gospels, the four records of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, they are followed by Acts, which is a history of the early church. Then there are a series of epistles or letters which have been written to different churches and different church leaders. And then finally, there is the book of Revelation, which is the Apostle John's vision from God. 
These 66 books, and if that was a little bit hard to read, make sure you grab a growth group guide and you can have a look at that a little bit later today. These 66 books are grouped by genre and they're organized into two different sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books, the New Testament 27 books. Now, what is the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Have you ever wondered this question before? Well, the word testament simply means covenant. And though we don't use the word covenant very often today, it simply means an agreement between two parties. And so the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, it's the agreement that God made with the nation of Israel. It outlined in detail how they would live and how they would worship Him. The New Covenant, or the the New Testament, is the agreement that God made with all people through Jesus. It outlines how all people from every ethnic background, how they can relate to God and how they can know Him. And the new covenant that's established in Jesus, it fulfills the old covenant with the nation of Israel. To put it as simply as I can, the Old Testament lays the foundation. The New Testament builds on it and completes it. The Old Testament makes promises and prophecies and predictions. The New Testament keeps and fulfills them. The Old Testament promises a Messiah and the New Testament reveals that Messiah. The Old Testament records the giving of God's law. The New Testament shows how Jesus fulfilled that law. The Old Testament shows how paradise was lost. The New Testament shows how paradise is regained. Now, you might wonder, does this mean that I can get rid of the Old Testament? Can I cut the first 39 books out of my Bible? And of course, the answer is no. See, Jesus has changed the way we relate to the Old Testament. He has fulfilled its promises and its prophecies and its predictions, but he has not abolished it. Here's the way Jesus said it himself in Matthew chapter 5. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. It's a shorthand way of describing the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament, its laws, its promises, its prophecies. And this is why, for example, we don't make animal sacrifices in church anymore. Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate sacrifice. This is why we don't follow the dietary laws and the the cleansing rituals that you find all throughout the Old Testament. Because Jesus' death on the cross has made us clean once and for all. Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament, but he has not abolished it or got rid rid of it. In fact, the Old Testament is the background that helps us to understand who Jesus is and what he has done. Here's how Jesus said it to a group of religious leaders in John chapter 5. This is what he says to them. He says, you study the scriptures. Now, this time in the story, the scriptures, the only scriptures were around were the Old Testament. You study the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life by keeping all these Old Testament laws. Listen to what Jesus says. These are the very scriptures, the Old Testament, that testify about me. Jesus is saying, the Old Testament points to me. The Old Testament testifies to me. I like the way that uh, a writer named Tim Chester kind of summarizes this issue. He says, we need Christ to understand the Old Testament. We need to read the Old Testament in light of Jesus, how he fulfills its laws and promises and prophecies. But we also need the Old Testament 
to understand Christ. If you like superhero movies, the Old Testament is kind of like the origin story of Jesus. We cannot fully understand who Jesus is, what he's done, apart from the Old Testament background. I mean, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Or the Lamb of God? Or the Son of Abraham? Or the Son of David? Or the true vine? Or the good shepherd? And on and on I could go. All of these images find their origin in the Old Testament. The Bible is one big story. And I wonder if this is the way that you read the Bible. I wonder if this is the way that you understand the Bible. To be honest, I don't think many Christians today read the Bible as one big cohesive story. I think we we tend to read the Bible or treat it more like a lucky eight ball. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a lucky eight ball, but you kind of shake it and it's got this little thing inside and it rolls around and then it'll land on something. It's supposed to give you advice or give you a dose of inspiration. And I think this is how people read the Bible. They look to it merely for advice or inspiration. And this isn't wrong. I mean, the Bible is full of advice for, for living. The whole book of Proverbs is about practical wisdom for life. But the Bible is more than just advice for living. The Bible is more than just a moral code. The Bible is a big story about a big God with big plans. Now, what are these plans? What is this story? Well, I'd encourage you to look at the beginning of the Bible and look at the end. You know, the beginning and the end are usually pretty significant when it comes to a story. And look at how the Bible begins and ends. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How does the Bible end? Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible is a big story about a big God with big plans. Plans for nothing less than a redeemed humanity living in a restored cosmos, in restored relationship with God for all eternity. And if we are going to make sense of the Bible, if we're going to understand the the Bible rightly, we need to understand this bigger picture. If we don't, we may not only misuse the Bible, we may also miss the point of the Bible. And so this is why we are beginning this series today. We want to help you see the big picture of the Bible, see how the Bible fits together. We want to zoom out to see the overarching story. Perhaps it's helpful to think about it this way. Our normal practice is to preach through books of the Bible or sections of the Bible. So earlier this year, we worked our way through the Beatitudes, Jesus' series of sayings in Matthew 5. Next term, we're going to be diving back into the book of Acts. We've already looked at the first seven chapters, and we're going to look at the next nine chapters. This is our normal practice. And you might say that this style of preaching, it's a little bit like going on a bushwalk. Now, when you go on a bushwalk, you pay attention to the details around you. You you look at the trees and the rocks and the insects and the animals. You pay attention to what's going on around you. And it's what we normally do. We go for bushwalks through books of the Bible. But what we're doing in this series is we're going to the airport. We're getting on a plane, and we're going up into the air. We're changing our perspective. We're going to look at the landscape from above. We're not going to look at all of the details, but we're going to look at the significant landmarks. We're going to see the bigger picture. Now, what is the bigger picture of the Bible? 
What are the significant landmarks in the unfolding story of the Bible? What are the main movements? Let me give you a very quick overview of the story of the Bible. Let me show you where we're going in the weeks ahead. We're going to begin next week by looking at creation, the beginning of everything, the world and humanity as it was meant to be. And this will lead us to the fall, the corruption of everything, the reason that our world and our lives are not as they should be. And then this will lead us to promise. By the way, don't you love the artwork for this series? Kirsten, our graphic designer, has done an amazing job. This will lead to promise because God doesn't leave us to sort it out ourselves. God promises that he will fix the mess that we have made. And it will begin with a man named Abraham and his descendants. And this brings us to the Exodus. When Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. And so God delivers them through a man named Moses. God brings them to himself. He gives them his law. And then he leads them into the promised land. And that then takes us to kingdom. Because safe and secure in the promised land, the people of Israel begin to live under the rule of different kings. Begins well with King David and King Solomon, but then it goes downhill very quickly due to ongoing sin and disobedience. And it leads to the next movement in the story, which is exile. The kingdom of Israel are split into two. The people of God are forced from their homeland. They're taken away by foreign powers. Now, though they would eventually return to their homeland, they would continue to wait for the fulfillment of God's promise, the promise of a coming saviour. And this is where the New Testament picks up the story. See, after a period of waiting for 400 years, we finally arrive at the appearing of the Messiah. Jesus is God's king, and he has come to establish God's kingdom. And through his life, his teaching, his miracles, he proves that he is who he said he was, and that he's come to set everything right. But, it, but he does it in a surprising way. He dies on a Roman cross. And yet it was exactly through his death that he was enabling us to enter into restored relationship with God. And his resurrection proved the success of his rescue mission. And he ascended back into to heaven, but even then that's not the end of the story. Because Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to his followers and he leaves them with a the job to do. And it brings us to the next movement, which is mission. Jesus instructs his followers to go into the world and to tell all people the good news about what he's done and to warn them about what is to come. Because there is a day coming when Jesus will return and on that day there'll be a great division. Those who have rejected Jesus, they will come under his judgment and be cast from his presence. And those who have received Jesus, they will join him for all eternity. Not in a disembodied existence in the clouds, but in a glorious future in the new creation which is the final movement in the biblical storyline. It will be a return to the world as it was meant to be, a redeemed humanity in a restored cosmos, enjoying relationship with God forever. That's the storyline of the Bible, and that's what we're going to unpack in the weeks ahead. And we're going to see how Jesus is at the very center of this story, and we're going to see how you and I fit in and what it means for us today. Because the truth is, well, the Bible was not written to us. I mean, there's no book in the Bible that's addressed to Adam Shoemaker. There's no letter in the Bible that's addressed to Oasis Church in Bray Park. The Bible was not written to us. The Bible was written for us. I love the way that a, a, an Australian um, writer says it, Richard Chin. Listen to this. He says, the Bible was written by God through people 
to others about Jesus for us on the edge of eternity. I love that. By God, through people, to others, about Jesus for us. And this is why Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he says, for everything that was written in the past, listen to this, was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. The Bible was written by God, through people, to others, about Jesus, for us. And this is the conviction at the heart of this series. We believe the Bible is from God and it's for us. So here's the question I want to leave you with today. What about you? If you've written off the Bible, it's a dusty, irrelevant, boring old book. If you've never really considered the Bible, now I would invite you to come on this journey with us. Are you willing to see how the story of the Bible might intersect with the story of your life? How the God of the Bible might change and transform your life? Or if you're a Christian and you've neglected the Bible, I hope and pray that this series will rekindle your love for the Bible and it will stir up a new devotion to the Bible. I hope that you'll be able to say, along with the psalmist in Psalm 119, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. And if you're already devoted to the Bible, if it's shaping your life day in, day out, then I hope this series will deepen your appreciation for the Bible. I hope it will lead you into greener pastures where you can come to know and love God more deeply. Because after all, this is the very point of the Bible. It's not to know the Bible, it's to know God. We want to know the Bible better so we can know God better. You see, the Bible is like the tap, the faucet. You don't come to the tap to admire the tap. You come to the tap to drink. And this is what we want to do over these next few weeks. And a drink of the life-giving water that God gives so freely. Now, if you don't have a Bible or you don't have access to a Bible, there's just a couple of options that I'd lay before you this morning. The first is you can download the YouVersion app onto your phone. Totally free, every Bible version, hundreds of Bible reading plans, has everything you need to get started on your journey of reading the Bible. You can even hit play and it will read the Bible to you. Wonderful resource to have. You can go to the App Store and you search version or Bible, and that would be a wonderful thing to do. If you'd like a, a physical copy, a hard copy, then there are a few copies that we have available in the Connection Center. After the service, you can go, you can grab one of those, and you can keep it. It's yours. It's not a library. You don't have to bring it back. It's all yours. And you just begin your journey of engaging with God's Word. Because the Bible really is God's greatest gift to us outside of the Lord Jesus and His Spirit. So I'm excited about this journey together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And thank you that it helps us to see you and to know you, to see all that you've done for us through your Son, the Lord Jesus. And in the light of that knowledge, Lord, we begin to understand ourselves, who we are, why we're here, and what you've called us to do.
And so as we begin our journey into the big story of the Bible in these coming weeks, Lord, I ask and I pray that you would stir up in us a love for your word, a devotion to it, and that through it all, we might not simply be hearers of your word, but doers of it for the good of others and the glory of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for this closing blessing from Colossians chapter 3? May the word of God dwell in you richly with all wisdom to capture your hearts in Christ, to comfort your hearts in Christ, and to humble your hearts before Christ. Amen. Joy like the dawn and peace like a river You are the source that goes on
Join us online. We hope that we'll see you in person soon. God bless you all, friends.